These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. We've broken up Hammurabi's campaigns over the last few episodes into four separate campaigns of conquest, but the truth of it is that Babylon has been on a non-stop forward march since defeating Elam. Since 1765, his armies have been constantly on the move, either attacking or moving to the next attack, and it is now only just the turn of 1762 as we begin our episode today. In many ways, it seems that the only real roadblock has been the city of Larsa, which took a remarkable six months to starve out and assault. The final victories of Hammurabi's career will be little different from the Eshnunan and Northern campaigns, so lightning fast and absolute that we have almost no record of what happened. And indeed, we have until now been spoiled for detail, thanks to the recovery of the Mari collection of 20,000 contemporary government documents. But with the defeat of Mari, this record goes silent. Though the actual conquest appears to have been swift, there are some interesting details surrounding the last days of Zimri Lim. But to understand them, we need to understand something that I've been underplaying throughout this podcast. The degree to which the gods were real and directly present in the lives of Mesopotamians. For us, faith is one section of our lives, and for many people, not a large one. Indeed, the very word faith, as I've just used it, would have been utterly alien to a Babylonian. Just as a modern person is confident beyond the bounds of faith in the principle of gravity, even if he may not understand the tensor math of general relativity, so too was a Babylonian certain that he lived in a world of directly observable gods and magic, even if he was never actually allowed into the inner sanctums of the temples. To a greater or lesser extent, the religious practices of the Mesopotamians have been present in every single historical action mentioned in this podcast. Before any government action, oracles would be taken and the gods would be praised. After the action was successful, the gods would be praised again and sacrificed too. When problems arose, magic was a perfectly valid solution, though what we call magic was to them just the petitioning of the gods for a certain outcome. As a modern man, you might ask how they could have gone thousands of years without realizing that this magic didn't work. But of course, your very question is wrong to a Babylonian, since the magic self-evidently worked often enough for the deeply pragmatic Mesopotamians to continue relying on it. Our modern need to constantly know why things work was wholly superfluous in the Bronze Age because, on one hand, they simply lacked the physical tools to ever possibly know about things like microorganisms or electromagnetism, and on the other hand, they already knew why things worked because the gods willed it so. Today, we would consider a person who is pragmatic and incurious to perhaps also be stupid, but for the Mesopotamians, the things we consider superstition were often examples of empiricism at work, carefully observed and recorded, and at no point in history more carefully recorded than in the Babylonian period. To begin at the beginning, the Babylonians and Amorites that dominate Mesopotamia in the 1700s have adopted their religion from the Akkadians almost wholesale, much the way that the Romans took much of their own beliefs from the Greeks. The Amorite era does see the introduction of some new gods and a few changes in ideas, but for the most part is continuous with the previous indigenous tradition. 
the Akkadians, in turn, had taken much of their own faith from the Sumerians, and though a lack of writing before 3000 BCE makes it hard to prove one way or another, there are some who believe that the Sumerians took many elements of their own religion from the previous Ubayids, who inhabited the land in prehistory. Still, the faith is often called the Sumerian faith for simplicity, since they're generally seen as providing its foundation. They believed in multiple gods, and were more than happy to accept pretty much any new god into their worldview. But it isn't the case that all people worshipped all or even the majority of the gods. There was a definite hierarchy and at definite cities and in different times you could have very different lists of gods, different ideas of who the major gods were, and different ideas about any particular god. There were dozens of minor gods for each function, though in practice what that meant was there were lots of cities, each with a god that had undertaken that function in that city. And if you only look at the region as a whole over the millennia and imagine the faith to be a united entity over that period of time, would you get confused as to why there are so many, for example, healing gods? For the average person, however, this multitude of gods was nice, but not the most important thing. Each person would typically have at most three gods that he focused on. A city god, a tribal, clan, or family god, and a personal god. In many cases, the personal god would be the city or tribal god, and in the case of Hammurabi, his family god Marduk was also the city protector of Babylon. This cut down on complexity greatly for the average worshipper, and also shows us that the Mesopotamians saw their gods in deeply human terms. As mentioned in a previous episode, the purpose of humanity was to serve the gods, and not in an abstract way like many modern religions, but very directly to serve physical goods to the gods. The Sumerian pantheon would have loved Walmart, at least conceptually, since what they wanted from humanity, very explicitly, was good food, good beer, and pleasant gifts to be offered to them on a regular basis. The gods cared very little for doctrinal disputes, faith without works, theological puzzles, or things of that sort. The practice of religion, then, was to be taken very pragmatically. You owed the gods, like a debt that can never be discharged. But all the gods is too many for one man, so you build a relationship with your personal god and pay your debt by serving him. When you want something, you ask the god for it. But just as with humans, you don't go up and just ask people for things willy-nilly. If you come to me as a random stranger and ask to take time out of my day to help you out, I'm likely to say no if I have other things I'd rather be doing. But if you come up and offer me $50, well then, now I'm going to start considering whether your offer is good enough for the favor requested. But then again, you are still a stranger, and if you only come to me when you want something, even if you bring offerings, that starts to sound like work, and I'm unlikely to be well inclined towards you. However, if we've had a relationship for a long time, if you've been doing things for me, like, say, spreading the Oldest Stories podcast on social media and leaving reviews on your podcast app, then you come up to me and say, hey, you're pretty great, and your show is pretty great. Well then, I might well be inclined to help you out a little bit. And the gods 
are no different. You praise your personal God each day and sacrifice regularly so that he thinks well of you consistently. He isn't your friend, but you can be his favorite subordinate if you try hard enough. Your personal God is your protector, not because you pay him, but because he likes you and wants to keep you around. Of course, you still pay him. You are, after all, obligated to his service. But you want to keep him happy with you beyond that obligation. This daily prayer can even go beyond the words you say and all the way to your very name. The vast majority of Akkadian and Amorite names are praise for some god or another. Take, for example, Rim Sin Vlarsa. The first part is some word of praise. The second part is Sin, god of the moon. Shamsi Adad's name respects Adad, god of storms, and his son Ishmi Dagon praises Dagon, an agricultural and war god. Every time their name was said, it was an act of praise for the god. We can get a sense of the relationship of the man and his personal god in this probably generic prayer for a man who has sworn a false oath on his god and is thus in quite a bit of trouble. Incantation. My God, I did not know your punishment was so severe. I repeatedly swore a solemn oath on your life in vain. I repeatedly neglected your ordinances. I went too far. I repeatedly skirted your work in times of difficulty. I repeatedly trespassed well beyond your boundary. I did not know. I acted in excess. My sins are so many. I do not know what I did. O oh my God, annul, release, relax the anger of your heart. Disregard my transgressions. Accept my prayer. Turn my errors into virtues. Your hand is so severe. I have experienced your punishment. Let the one who does not revere his God and goddess learn from me. My God, be at peace. My goddess, be reconciled. Turn your faces towards the petition of my upraised hands. Let your furious hearts calm down. Let your feelings be soothed. Grant me reconciliation, that I may, without forgetting, consistently sing your praises to the widespread people. Here we see a confession of sin, a plea for the absolution of sin, and a recognition by the person that the God is directly responsible for some difficulties in their life. But fundamentally, it's, I messed up, I'm sorry, I will do better, please calm down, a prayer invoked by many men to many rightfully upset women throughout history. Indeed, in a later episode, we will look at one of the great literary works from either the end of Hammurabi's life or sometime during his successor's reign that examines the relationship with a personal god, which extends on the tale of the man and his god, mentioned previously in the episode The Oldest Debates. The personal god relationship was powerful and complex and varied from person to person, but no Mesopotamian ever lost sight of that relationship altogether. But say, for example, that your personal god is Ninmug, a very minor goddess of crafting and birth, but you have somehow committed a sin against Isham, a mid-level god of fire and war. You wouldn't go straight up to Isham, a total stranger, and start a conversation with him. That would be strange and rude. Instead, you might write a letter prayer like the following. 
speak to my lady Ninmug. Thus says Ninurta Quarad. Note the name, a praise for the god Ninurta, your servant. Because Isham listens to your speaking, intercede for me with Isham for this sin I've committed. When you have interceded for me, with a cheerful attitude, I will bring a sacrifice to Isham, and to you I will bring a sheep. When I proclaim praises before Isham, I will also proclaim praises to you. Now, conveniently, Isham happened to be the divine husband of Ninmug, and thus it makes sense for a person to ask a wife to maybe intercede on his behalf with her husband, if you have a better relationship with the wife. Similarly, if one has a request of the great gods, it would be less likely for the average person to petition them directly, instead asking another god to put in a good word for them. This is very similar to a social principle in which you wouldn't just go up to the king with some issue, you would find some lower-level bureaucrat with whom you had a pre-existing relationship and ask them to put in a good word on your behalf with the king. Fundamentally, magic and medicine operate in a similar manner, and indeed would not have been considered separate from prayer in Babylonian times. Consider the following magic spell, conducted by an exorcist, to rid a field of locusts and other pests. Incantation. O Igigi and great gods of heaven, in your presence I hereby burn in fire this night locust, egg of locust, dormouse, rat, grub, devourer pest, and mubatiru bug. Their seeds and eggs that I hereby burn before you shall never be spawned again. May locust, rat, grub, devourer pest, mubatiru bug not be created where they are set down. May they turn to clay, reckon them as tabooed soil. May their names be forgotten and their offspring perish by your great command that cannot be revoked, by command of Ea, king of wisdom, by means of the ritual of Ashula'e, king of exorcism, and the rest is lost. But there is a lot we can extract here, most of all the fundamental similarity between praying and magic. Here the exorcist is being very specific about what he wants to happen, where the two previous prayers have been much more oblique about it, but this is likely the difference between personal prayer to a personal god and professional prayer by a paid exorcist to a pair of major gods. Note also that what we would interpret as magic ritual, the burning of eggs from the undesired insects, makes perfect sense in this context, since obviously you would have to indicate clearly what you want done, just as you would need to tell a modern exterminator if it's mice or ants that he's supposed to hunt down in your house. This burning is said to take place in the presence of the named gods, a crucial part in all this meaning that there was a physical emblem or statue of the god directly before the exorcist. This makes sense, of course, since if you want me to come do something, you need to come tell me. If you just shout your request out the window, I may coincidentally be nearby and be able to hear you, but I'm unlikely to be interested in doing you any favors like that. Finally, this would, judging from other similar prayer spells, be accompanied with offerings and praise for the gods, though that would either be in a separate hymn of praise, of which we have endless hundreds, or in the damaged part of the tablet. 
In previous episodes, I've told tales of the gods, and for many modern people, it is the myths and legends of Ishtar, Marduk, Ninurta, and all the others that make up the bulk of their understanding of the Sumerian religion. I don't want to devalue these tales, they were both worship and entertainment all rolled together, but the fact is that while these and other legends that haven't survived may have floated around society as a sort of pre-modern form of television, livening up social gatherings and holy days, they would have only been considered an ancillary aspect of religious practice by the Sumerians themselves. The stories were fun, but it was the prayers and offerings, the devotion and the effort that filled a Babylonian's spiritual life. Prayers were made before gods by every member of society, from the children of slaves to the kings of empires. While the lower classes were probably the bulk of prayers said just by sheer volume, most of what survives from Sumerian religion is from the upper classes, the faith of the priests and kings. Now, the priests would, of course, be providing religious services to the people, but their chief duty was to maintain specific temples to particular gods. These were very literally the houses, or more rightly the palaces, of the gods, and the statues of the god within the inner sanctum was considered to literally house the deity. We have semi-historical records that mention the gods coming out of the palaces and walking around, talking to kings and even having sex with them in the case of the famously passionate Ishtar, though it's debated as to how exactly the more active accounts should be understood. Still, even when not walking around, the cult statues needed to be tended to, fed twice a day, cleaned regularly, and even given new clothes on a regular basis. A temple was a busy household in terms of all the work the people needed to do to keep everything in order, but also for the god himself. Obviously, since the god is literally hanging out in the inner sanctum, you can't have him get lonely, and the statue of Marduk in his main temple in Babylon, for example, was accompanied by four divine dogs, his wife, her two hairdressers, and an entire court of lesser gods that kept their residence nearby, much in the same way an earthly king was surrounded by servants and courtiers. Within the temple environment, a great god could be called upon much more directly, usually with the priest serving as the intermediary instead of the personal god. And, on the holy days of a particular god, the offerings would flow in. These offerings were given to the god, but it seems they did not vanish into the etheric mouths of their divine recipients. Rather, once the essence of the food had been consumed by the gods, the priests and workers would divide up the offerings among them and live off them. The income from sacrifices would be supplemented by temple fields, a set of land owned by the temples and worked by farmers more or less as normal, but with taxes from that land paid to the temple rather than the local authority. All this together ensured that the chief function of humanity, providing for the gods was well taken care of at all times. Individuals may have carried out some sacrifices within their own homes as well, and while there's debate about how much the poorer classes could have afforded it, the resulting meat and other offerings would be shared around the household following the ceremony. For a king, however, religion was a bit of a different matter. 
In personal piety, it was likely little different, but being at the top of the hierarchy gave a king religious privileges and responsibilities that were, in all cases, taken very seriously. I have, in this series on Hammurabi, portrayed him as highly intelligent, calculating, and sometimes outright duplicitous. This portrayal may in some places be mistaken, but if we take it as a given, it might be sensible to ask if he may have been somewhat cynical when it comes to the matter of the gods. This is absolutely not the case, however. There are many interesting and complex interactions between man and god in the Bronze Age, but at no point did anyone express a doubt that the gods were present and involved in the mortal world to a great degree. Like all rulers, he prayed for victory in battle in terms that could be taken as magic spells to ensure victory, and whenever he won, he was always scrupulous to give the first credit to the gods for granting him that victory. The king was allowed, by virtue of his station, to interact much more closely with the high gods than normal people. The ritual of divine marriage to the goddess Ishtar took place each new year during the Akatu festival, and the Babylonian kings were the primary champions on earth for their patron god of Babylon, Marduk. Each city had a patron god, and this god mattered more to its people than any other, even if he may have been considered a relatively minor god in other cities. This is an era before the ideas of nationhood that have grown in the modern era, but there was still a strong sense of patriotism for the city a man belonged to. So strong is the sense of self-identity of each city, in fact, that the Babylonian Empire is never actually named that in Hammurabi's time. Rather, it's referred to as the group of cities that have all submitted to Hammurabi's authority. And as the god of each city is a core part of that Bronze Age civic patriotism, a very large part of Hammurabi's later diplomacy and religious duty is to ensure that all these gods are venerated and respectfully cared for. And when a king was right with the gods, when everything was in order and the sacrifices bountiful, then the gods would offer him prosperity and power on earth, so that the monarch that most pleased them would be given the greatest share of the earth to organize in his effective fashion. In the 1760s, it was Hammurabi who was favored by the will of the gods. We could see another ruler, Zimri Lim in Mari, attempting to decipher the will of the gods at about the same time in a series of divinations carried out in the same years as Hammurabi's great campaigns. We've already seen how, in his own mind, he was failing to uphold his duty to the gods because he had lost the city of Hit to Babylon, Hit being the religious center where trial by water could take place for most of Mesopotamia. For nearly a decade, Zimri Lim had been a loyal and faithful ally of Babylon, and all he ever asked in return was to be given this one border town back. We have many lengthy back and forths between the two monarchs, in which Hammurabi consistently avoided the issue, but finally Zimri Lim received the following. I told you my concerns. Why do I want hit? Your country's power lies in donkeys and chariots. My country's power lies in ships. That is exactly why I really want the bitumen and pitch from that city. Why else would I want the city from him? This is, of course, exceedingly disingenuous, though, like all good lies, contains a kernel of truth. 
Hammurabi clearly made use of the prestige and soft power that came with owning the major religious settlement. My own suspicion is that he also enjoyed tweaking the King of Mari. However, he couldn't admit to either of those because they both undermined his claim to the city. So he pretended to ignore the religious aspect completely in favor of the economic aspect, insisting that he needed the local bitumen, a form of petroleum that bubbles up to the surface useful in sealing the hulls of Mesopotamian reed riverboats. This negotiation, however, was in the middle of the Elamite War, and Zimri Lim faced a dilemma. Either join forces completely, let the issue go, and hope to survive the Elamite invasion, or leave the status of Hit unsettled and risk a break with his ally in a time of crisis. Every decision of this magnitude was sent to the gods to decide. Omens were everywhere in Mesopotamia. Even if you didn't have a question, the gods were known to announce their plans in the flight of birds, in birth defects, both human and animal, in strange animal behavior, including witnessed acts of cross-species copulation in the wild, in the appearance of snakes, locusts, or ravens, and heavenly signs like eclipses, though the full development of the famous Babylonian astrology is still quite a ways off. These were regularly remarked upon and interpreted by priests whenever they were reported, and kings kept an eye on these signs much the same way a modern president might follow the Federal Reserve's economic reports to stay informed about the world around them. But when there was a specific question to be asked, an oracle would need to be consulted directly. These were not, like in ancient Greece, drugged-up women on mountaintops, but rather a systematized extension of the already existing observational omens. In the episode First Men, we already learned the mythic story of how Enmiduranki was taken up to the home of the gods to learn the secrets of divination and the rituals of priesthood, suggesting that the two elements were both considered fundamental to a priest's activities. The more common method for poorer folks looking to learn the will of the gods was lecanomancy, in which a bowl of water would have a bit of oil added to it, or if you were very poor you could use a bit of flour, and in the manner in which it floated to the top of the water, what shapes and movements it made, could be interpreted to tell the future or gain answers to questions. This ritual would be accompanied by a fair bit of god-praising as well, and smaller sacrifices. But most common in the record, since it was the go-to method for anyone who could afford it, was haruspicy, or liver reading. This form of divination likely evolved from empirical study done by priests, since the sacrifice of sheep was fairly common from an early date, and having come to the reasonable though mistaken conclusion that the liver produced blood and was thus the source of life in the human or animal body, in the course of the sacrifice, when deformities were noticed on a liver, then later events in the world would occur, the two came to be linked. It wasn't thought of as the deformed liver causing the other things in the world, but rather that if the gods are upset, then it will have ramifications on the souls of animals as well as in the outside world. And when you think of it as reading the souls of living beings to check on the state of the lord of souls, it seems rather more reasonable than ripping out sheep livers to decide matters of government policy. The Babylonians weren't stupid. 
They had all the same mental abilities as you or I. They just came at life from a different set of assumptions and things that seem ridiculous to us today make sense from their perspective. In any case, as the war with Elam heated up, Zimri Lim called a diviner to his palace and asked the question, should Zimri Lim yield hit to the king of Babylon? Would he be safe? Would his country be well and flourish? The answer came up as no. Zimri Lim should not surrender the town of Hit. But of course, there was always a bit of uncertainty in divination. So just as modern science experiments are supposed to be repeatable, so too was the divination. So they did it again on a second lamb, just to be sure, and received the same answer. But the king and the diviner weren't done yet. The stakes were high, and they could afford the sheep required to get this right. What they couldn't afford was messing up. And so the question was repeated, but this time in reverse. Should Zimri Lim not yield hit to the king of Babylon? Would he be safe? Would his country be well and flourish? This pair of harspices yielded yeses, meaning that yes, Zimri Lim should not surrender hit. Four carefully run trials overseen by a priest who is presumably an expert and on behalf of a good and pious king seem pretty scientifically accurate, and everyone was satisfied that it was the will of the gods and the best course for Mari to not give up on the city of Hit just yet. Thus, it would remain one sticking point in an increasingly fraught relationship that saw the two kings grow increasingly frustrated with each other through the Larsen War and finally fall out completely. As the Babylonian soldiers steamrolled Eshnunna in 1762, Mari knew that it was out of allies. Even Yamhad, who had set him up as a client king some 15 years prior, was increasingly friendly with Babylon and might not be counted on to come to Mari's aid should they be attacked. And so Zimri Lim turned again to the gods, asking his wife to travel to an oracle and say, Ask the oracles about Hammurabi of Babylon. Will this man ever die? Does he speak honestly with us? Will he declare war? Will he start a siege while I'm on campaign in the north? The oracle's response was, That man is plotting many things against this country, which was, of course, absolutely true, but he will not succeed. That part was not true, but the diviner had even elaborated that my lord will see what the god will do to him. You will capture and overpower him. His days are numbered, and he will not live long. Another oracle, of the god Dagon, announced, O Babylon, what are you doing? I will capture you with a sword and battle net. I will give the palaces of your seven conspirators and their treasures all to Zimri Lim. These oracles were completely wrong. What's more, Hammurabi had his own oracles that he was consulting during all this that confirmed all of his decisions. One could easily ask why the falsity of some oracles did not cast doubt on the entire practice of fortune-telling, but the fact is that the reality of the gods was as unquestioned as gravity. If I drop a plate on the ground, it may or may not break based on a hundred factors, but I don't lose my faith in gravity when the plate fails to shatter on impact. 
Similarly, there were many things that could go wrong with the diviner or the circumstances surrounding the divination to prevent the true will of the gods from being properly understood by mere mortals. And a failure reflected badly on the priest who got it wrong, not the practice itself, which was used constantly in government decisions, big and small, from the broad sweep of geopolitical strategy all the way down to questions like, should I send the army to fight today or tomorrow? Indeed, just as Zimri Lim is receiving news that he will surely defeat Babylon, he learns that from the south is coming Hammurabi himself. Some generals, 4,000 men, and a diviner. Interestingly, this may be the only time we can confirm Hammurabi was personally present for an invasion, and even this is a little bit unclear. Additionally, note the presence of the diviner, who would have been responsible for confirming every move the army made, or possibly for deciding those moves, since the omens would almost never be ignored by military commanders. This southern push was joined by some portion of the 20,000 men currently in the north, and the capture of Mari was swift and without details. The story of Zimri Lim ends in silence, though we can be certain he never managed to capture Babylon with sword and net. At the same time, in a campaign mentioned almost nowhere, tiny Malgium on Babylon's eastern border was crushed and annexed. The city of Mari was both prosperous and prestigious even outside its kingdom, and it was a hotbed of independent sentiments. As such, only a few months after taking the city, Hammurabi ordered its inhabitants to be relocated. Now, relocation was not unheard of, though it seems to have been relatively rare until this period of rising empires. Some think he wanted the skilled workers of Mari to boost his economy in places closer to the heartland of Babylonia. Some suspect he wanted to disperse a population of potential troublemakers into small communities far from home where they would have more difficulty causing problems. But whatever the case, the city of Mari, who had experienced a fairly gentle sack following a quick assault, was burned to the ground, its people enslaved and dispersed by force only a few months or perhaps two years following their capture. Hammurabi may have been conducting a number of resettlements, since shortly afterwards the famously rebellious people of Eshnunna thought they could throw off the yoke of Babylon as easily as they had the Elamites. But when troops came to put the city to siege, the mighty populace discovered that their high walls couldn't save them when Hammurabi diverted the river itself, the mighty Diyala, into the city, flooding the streets, undermining the walls, and driving the panicked citizens into the waiting arms of the attacking army. The sack would be harsh, though unlike Mari, Eshnunna would prove to be too valuable to annihilate completely, and the next year Hammurabi would demonstrate his benevolence to his realm by rebuilding the walls that he had destroyed. This combination of destroying with one hand and benevolently rebuilding with the other would prevent any more rebellions from rising within his realm for the final decade of his life. The ten years leading up to 1750 would prove to be some of the most prosperous in Mesopotamian history, and it is here that the abundance, wisdom, and justice for which Hammurabi would be remembered for thousands of years would reach its peak. 
there are still some topics about daily life and culture of the Babylonian Golden Age that I want to cover before moving on in the story. So next week we're going to look at the very bottom of this society and ask how their lives have been improved by Hammurabi's power, justice, and wisdom. So join us next week as we look at the legal status and daily life of slaves, women, and laborers in Babylon. Thank you for listening.